Hey everyone, welcome to episode 26 of the True Crime Couple podcast. I'm Kay. And I'm John. And we want to start off the show by thanking everyone for reaching out to us on social media for the past two weeks about episode 25. It seemed to be one of our listeners' favorites, so we really enjoyed bringing that to you guys. Thank you guys. We also want to thank you for anyone who left reviews on iTunes. They're really so sweet, and we can't thank you guys enough for giving us so much positive feedback. Also, thank you for reaching out, whether it's on Twitter or Instagram. And without any further ado, we're going to start this week's episode. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Our story today is taking us to the village of Tolachant d'Arcy, which is located in the county of Essex in the east of England. The town is known for the old hall marshes and the ancient salt-making sites called the Red Hills that are found along the east coast of Essex. It's kind of like creepy marshlands. Ooh. Yeah. In this village in 1949, the Speakmans owned a sprawling tenant farm that held 300 acres of land. The land had been in the family since the early 1800s. However, there was no son to inherit the land from the Speakmans, so they allowed their 25-year-old daughter, June, who had just gotten married to Ralph Neville Bamber, to inherit the property. Ralph, who went by his middle name Neville, had fought in the Royal Air Force during World War II. He, like June, was also 25 years old when they got married and came from a family of farmers. The couple was excited and honored to have the land passed on to them. Neville, who stood at 6'4", was known as a dedicated and meticulous farmer in the area. Although it seemed as if the couple had a bright and happy future ahead of them, they hit a few rough patches along the way. The couple wanted the dream life, and with the farm and great relationship, they were almost there. However, the couple was unable to have biological children. Because of this, June suffered severe depression. And in 1955, after years of trying, She was admitted for a short stay in a psychiatric hospital. A few months after her admission, she was released back home. In 1958, the couple made the choice to adopt. However, this was not the solution to all of the couple's problems. A few months after the adoption, June had to be readmitted into a mental health facility. It was during this stay that June received electric shock therapy. In this treatment, seizures are electronically induced in patients. This was done as a way to relieve them from whatever mental disorder they were suffering from. It is considered a last line of defense and is used only with the consent of the patient. However, that kind of comes into question when people make the argument whether or not the patients, when suffering from their mental disorders, really have the, the mental capacity to give consent. But it's kind of a debate for a different podcast. This treatment was created around 1938 and was widely used in the United Kingdom and the United States throughout the 1940s. However, let's focus on the treatments in the UK. ECT usage has been on the decline ever since the 1980s. However, those numbers had recently risen due to the passage of the Mental Health Act of 2007, and that allows people to be treated against their will if they cannot make cognitive decisions. The psychiatric community is still torn over whether or not this treatment is humane. But in the 1940s and in the 1950s, when June gets her treatment, it was very common. And it's going to be more common in the UK later on 
up until the 80s than in the United States. Anyway, that debate we're going to skip for now. But June will leave that mental health facility after three weeks of treatment, and we'll see a psychiatrist named Hugh Ferguson until 1982. So at least she's getting the help that she needs. She's an outpatient, which is good. Like, she's not just getting the treatment and then it's like, go home and fend for yourself. Right. I see what you're saying. I mean, that's good. I mean, at least she's not getting shocked anymore. Yeah. I mean, it it was a very common treatment that took place. Some people are going to swear by it and some people are going to say it was extremely traumatic. But June really, there's no record as to how June felt about it. It was just a treatment that took place. I also feel like it, everything that's depicted in like uh, TV shows, movies, they always depict it like not having the choice. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So well, it's kind of like burned in my brain that like you don't have a choice <laughs> and that yeah. you just have to get shocked. But I think for that's for like dramatic purposes too. Right. But whatever happened to June in that facility, it didn't deter her away from visiting psychiatrists. So it it couldn't have been that bad. Okay, let's take a deeper look into the adoptions of the Bamber children. Now, adoption in the 1950s in England is an interesting topic that I think we should touch upon. Legal adoption began in the United Kingdom around 1927. That's when the official law was passed. And from then until arguably the 1970s, the adoption process was not professionalized. In the 1950s, when the Bambers chose to adopt, most adoptions in England were due to teenage pregnancy or illegitimate children. And those were exactly the circumstances surrounding the births of Sheila and Jeremy Bamber, the two adopted children. Sheila was born on July 18, 1957, and she was adopted as an infant at just three months old in October of 1957. Her biological mother, who had actually named her Phyllis, gave her up to the Church of England's Children's Society, as she was an unmarried 18-year-old girl, who just so happened to be the daughter of a senior chaplain to the Archbishop of Canterbury. The adoption was arranged privately, as the Bambers reached out to the Church of England, stating that they were willing to adopt and would like to be on a list of prospective parents if the Church received any children from families that were unable to keep their children. The chaplain, whose daughter had just given birth, noticed that the Bamber's name was on the list of couples in want of a child to adopt. The chaplain had known Neville from their time in the Royal Air Force and personally selected them to assume guardianship over his biological granddaughter. Sheila was known to have a complicated relationship with her mother. June was extremely religious, and Sheila always seemed to have a bit of a wild streak in her personality. From grammar school to high school, the English called Upper School, by the way. She attended a very expensive private school. After this, she chose to attend a secretarial college in London called Swiss College. It was during this time at 17 years old that she began dating a boy named Colin Caffell. That year, 1974, the couple had gotten pregnant and the Bambers arranged for her to have an abortion. I think that this is an interesting piece to the puzzle because here you have this religious woman who arranged an abortion for her daughter. And I think that comes more from the fact that June was so old school in her beliefs that a child shouldn't be had out of wedlock. But it seems that taking the manic religious high road, as Jean was explained to have done from from time to time, was only taken when it was convenient for her. So like really both 
things are bad. So what's worse, having a child out of wedlock or in the eyes of the church, it's the belief that you're killing a human being. Do you see what I'm saying? I do. I do see what you're saying. So it's it's an interesting call that was made by the Bambers, I believe. But something that's going to come up later on in the case is going to point us in the direction that the Bambers, are they're very highly regarded in the town. So I don't think they wanted to be... Imp- I don't think this is necessarily because June is super religious. I think she just didn't want the town to know. I agree. I think it's based more on like their image than right. You know their their religious beliefs. I, I completely agree. So within that same summer that the abortion was planned, June had found Sheila and Colin sunbathing in a field on the farm property, completely naked. Wow. Yeah. Um. But when this happened, it was reported by Colin that June went into hysterics. And began calling Sheila the devil's child and continued to do so on several occasions after this point. So some psychiatrists have pinpointed this in relation with the abortion as being the trigger that began Sheila's paranoid delusions that she had been taken over by the devil. Despite this tragic event that may have made other couples break up, Colin and Sheila stayed together and she continued to take her secretary classes. For a short time period, she also took hairdressing classes, which led to her finding work very briefly as a model. She worked for the Lucy Clayton Agency, who found her two months' work in Japan. However, shortly after her return to the UK in 1977, her and Colin got pregnant again. But this time it was a little different. They were both 20 years old and ready to start a family. That sounds so crazy, but back then, like, that was the normal time to like start having a family, but I couldn't imagine having a kid at 20 years old. I know. I mean, I'll be honest. I can't see me having a kid right now. I I know. I don't know if that's good or bad. (laughs) Well, I mean, we're still young, so it'll happen eventually. I think we're just too selfish. You think? Right now. We like our Netflix time too much? Yes, Netflix and chill. A little bit too much. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So Colin asked Sheila to marry him, and the two were married at the Chelmsford Registry Office in May of 1977. Unfortunately, Sheila lost the baby when she was six months pregnant, so she was very far along in her pregnancy. Feeling badly about their daughter's situation, the Bambers bought a flat for the couple in Hempstead so she could recuperate. After the couple's first miscarriage, they will suffer a second the following year. Sheila and Colin find out that they are pregnant for a third time, but because of her history and the fact that she's carrying twins, Sheila is ordered to be on bed rest for the last four months of her pregnancy. And on June 22, 1979, she gives birth to twin boys whom the couple names Daniel and Nicholas. After the birth of their sons, the marriage between Sheila and Colin begins to fall apart. Isn't that sad that that always happens? That is sad. Colin begins to have affairs and their fights become increasingly violent. Sheila, enraged one night after watching her husband leave a party that they attended together with another woman. It's oh, kind this of, dude's crazy. It's kind of a dick move. Oh, yeah. Um, well, she's going to punch a car window and had to be sent to the hospital for the injuries that she sustained from that. You know what I get the picture punch. of in my, in my mind? I picture uh, Carrie Underwood. Oh, that's Like not, just yeah. <laughs> destroying a car. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully they were in the car when the punch happened. <laughs> So this marriage is officially ended in May of 1982. And after the couple separated, 
another home is purchased for Sheila by her adoptive parents. This is pretty lucky. I mean, we haven't... I would... Just one. One house would be nice, but she's gotten two. Two yeah, in her life. Yeah, just one residence would be nice. <laughs> by all accounts, it seems like the co-parenting was going well between Colin and Sheila. Colin, despite the concerns he had about Sheila and her mental health, which we will get to in a second, always cared for Sheila and wanted her to have a positive relationship with their two sons. After the divorce, the Bambers told Sheila that they would help her buy the flat she was now living in, but she would have to pay her own way from this point on. So they agreed that they would pay off the remainder of the flat that she was living in, but her bills and everything else now was her responsibility. That's a great deal. I would totally do that. It's It's a pretty solid deal. Pay off my, you know, my home, have no mortgage. Awesome. But this is the beginning of all of Sheila's financial troubles. She had several low-paying jobs between her divorce and the night of the crimes. She worked as a waitress at a restaurant called um, School Dinners. This is so weird. The waitresses dress as provocative schoolgirls. <laughs> so it's kind of like... A weird Hooters. I was gonna say. I was just gonna yeah. say that it's like a schoolgirl, schoolgirl look. Um, uh, it's, Hooters. It's like, <laughs> it's like a classy version, UK version of Hooters. Really. I mean, or well, there is. I mean, over here there is something called tilted kilts. Maybe it's like that a little bit. Yeah, but they're like dressed like schoolgirls. All right, that's weird. Yeah. Well, anyway. I wouldn't be taking my family there for it, sure. There's definitely accounts of Sheila telling her friends that she feels uncomfortable working there because it really is just like objectifying you as you're being a waitress, but it was the only place she could find a job. And and Sheila is very beautiful. I mean, she worked as a model, so I'm sure. Are you saying that she got it was, I'm decent sure she, tips? I'm sure she got decent tips at school dinners. Okay. Okay. So... She was also a waitress in other restaurants that I'm sure she was able to dress normal in. And she worked for a cleaning service. And on one occasion, she took uh, nude photographs for money. And this is something that she, she deeply, deeply regretted. What had happened was she was really low on money. And someone said they wanted to do a tasteful, like, nude shoot, photo shoot. So in her friend's backyard, they, like, pinned up sheets. And she had took, took in pictures. But then when... she got the pictures back she realized that things that he said would be covered up really weren't covered up so she was very embarrassed about this and didn't want her parents to see so i think that added in her psychosis that is going to start beginning at this this point but this time in her life like i had just said is also plagued by chaos Because she could not pay all of her bills, and she did share custody of the two boys, she had to collect welfare to pay the rest of the rent. However, she often used this money unwisely. During this time, she developed a habit for partying, drugs, and having a lot of relationships with older men. It seemed that Sheila's drug of choice was cocaine, which we will see does not mix too well with the mental disorders that she's later diagnosed with. I mean, it is said that she, her cocaine usage is more social than anything like it's not a deep habit that she had but even socially doing cocaine which was very common in the late 70s 1980s but the problem was the mental illnesses that she had so like it's not just like someone who is of sound mind taking cocaine at a party this is someone with she's teetering on the border of like 
functionality, and then you're putting cocaine on the in, in the mix. Just sprinkle a little cocaine on there. Uh, yeah, and that's not a good idea. No, definitely not. Okay, so it seemed as if Sheila had hit rock bottom. Her parting was out of control, and she seemed to be having mental breakdowns on a weekly basis, which at times consisted of violence, including her banging her head against walls. And she was just about to lose her children, as they were staying full-time with Colin at this point. June, wanting to help her daughter, is going to refer her to Dr. Hugh Ferguson, whom she had been seeing as well. And in 1983, she began seeing the doctor. Now, I'm not sure if this is related, but it's also in this year that she chooses to reunite with her birth mother. At first, I was thinking the doctor might have suggested it so she could move on, but knowing now that she was in such a fragile state, I'm not sure. But either way, she reaches out to her biological mother after finding out that she now lives in Canada. The two have a meeting in Heathrow Airport. And it reportedly was just a very cordial meeting, but the two did not have a relationship any further than that. After a few visits with Dr. Ferguson, he stated that Sheila would have to be admitted into St. Andrew's Hospital as she was paranoid and in a psychotic, agitated state. While she was staying in this facility, she was given a diagnosis. At first, she was given the diagnosis of a schizoaffective disorder. This disorder can most simplistically be categorized as bipolar disorder coupled with hallucinations and paranoid delusions. However, it was told to her later that this was an incorrect diagnosis by the team of doctors at St. Andrews. Basically, it was Ferguson that had given her that diagnosis. The doctors at St. Andrews gave her the diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. Ferguson himself admits that he was incorrect with the first diagnosis, and he agreed with the second team of doctors. And that's probably most likely why he sent her to St. Andrews, because he felt like maybe he wasn't capable of handling what she had going on. Although symptoms may vary with patients, those who suffer from paranoid schizophrenia can experience delusions and hallucinations, as well as disorganized speech and behavior. Suicidal thoughts are also very common among sufferers. Sheila Ferguson stated that she believed that the devil had given her certain powers. She believed that she could project evil onto others, cause violence, and on a few occasions, she said she could make people have sex, including her sons. Which is bizarre because at this point, they're still toddlers. She stated that her sons were the devil's children and that it was the devil who had helped her carry this pregnancy to term, not God. She also said that she was capable of murdering her children and killing herself. Sheila was finally released from the mental health facility in September of 1983. She was told she would have to continue outpatient therapy and continue taking the drug Tifluoperazine, which is an antipsychotic. This medication was given to her in order to stop the hallucinations and delusions. So we looked up the effects of this, and they're pretty mild. And we have to keep this in mind later on, all right? So the side effects are drowsiness, dizziness, anxiety, dry mouth, stuffy nose, blurred vision, headache, tiredness, constipation, weight gain, and insomnia. Also, missed menstrual periods, breast swelling, or discharge. Also, swelling of hands and feet, loss of sexual appetite. The more serious side effects that they talked about included 
fainting, skin discoloration, twitching, tremors, joint and chest pain. So when we get into the possibilities of the crime, just keep these side effects in mind because there are some parts of the trial that are going to call into question what side effects this medication could have possibly had for Sheila. So it seemed that for a while, Sheila was doing well. She had normal visitation with her children and a boyfriend. However, something that happens very often with patients who suffer from mental illness, just about five months prior to the crime, Sheila is going to stop taking her medication. In March of 1985, Sheila was placed back at St. Andrews, again following a psychotic episode in which she believed she was in communication with God. God had told her during their conversations that the people around her, specifically her boyfriend, were trying to hurt her. Four weeks later, she was discharged from the hospital. Knowing that Sheila was unreliable when it came to taking her medication, her mother, June, and the doctor came to an agreement that she was getting monthly injections of haloperidol, which is also an antipsychotic drug. The side effects of this drug are similar to that of the prior drug she was on. However, this drug tended to be more sedative than the other. So she felt very, very drowsy when she took this medication. At this point, Sheila's children were living full-time with Colin, and Sheila occasionally had visitation. But her and Colin still had a really pretty solid relationship, so Sheila knew that anytime she wanted, she could visit Colin's. Which I'm sure, you know, which is rare because, you know, she's suffering from mental illness, and some people would be afraid of that for their children's sake sometimes, you know? Yeah, I have to say it is pretty refreshing, the relationship that Colin and Sheila seem to have. So now let's get into the history of Jeremy Bamber. Jeremy was born on January 13, 1961, to a student midwife who was having an affair with a married man. This married man was an army sergeant who did not want to risk his career at the time. Therefore, Jeremy, like Sheila, was given to the Church of England's Children's Society when he was only six weeks old. However, Jeremy's biological parents actually end up getting married and they have more children. His father would become part of a senior staff at Buckingham Palace, so they they have a really good life, actually. I have heard some sources say that he was actually the one who um, is going to pin the birth notices on Buckingham Palace for Charles and Diana, but I don't, I couldn't verify that, so I don't know if that's exactly true, but he did have a high position at Buckingham Palace, and it's It's pretty, it must be sad for Jeremy to realize that he was the one that was on the outs. Right. Like, his biological parents actually did get married. So, I mean, I'm sure that was difficult for him to come to terms with. I mean, it's nice for the parents, but uh, here you have this child that's just in the situation that he's in. And uh, things could have been differently if he was born at a different time. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's sad. But Jeremy was adopted at six months old by the Bamber family, who... A rich, nice family, so, I mean. Jeremy, like Sheila, attended private and boarding schools her whole life. However, Jeremy seemed to have a rougher go of things while away. At one boarding school in particular, Gresham School in Holt, Norfolk, he was the victim of bullying and what has been described only as one sexual assault. I looked into the school's history, and it seems like the school in the 1970s and now has been plagued with allegations of sexual assault on both male and female pupils. It also seems that not much action had been taking place on the part of the school against these allegations. But after what he claims to be a sexual assault, 
Jeremy left the school with no qualifications or graduation certificate, but went on to attend sixth form college and pass his seven O levels. So this is kind of like the equivalent of getting a GED in the United States. After this, Jeremy had stated to June and Neville that he wanted to travel. Understanding the difficulties that their son had went through, they agreed to pay for a trip for him to visit Australia and New Zealand. Now, it has never been confirmed if there's any truth to this, but Jeremy told a few friends that while in New Zealand, he robbed a jewelry store and took an expensive watch. He also bragged quite often that he was involved in smuggling cocaine back into the country. But like I said before, this can't be confirmed. Eventually, Jeremy returned home to England, where he agreed to work on his father's farm for a salary. To get him started, June and Neville gave him an apartment located approximately three to three and a half miles away, a car to use, and 8% of their caravan park business that they had called OC Road Campsites Limited. It was basically a trailer park in which they collected rent from people who kept their caravans on the site. I'm sure with all the that acreage that they have, that's yeah, probably oh, definitely. Oh, another a way good that they investment. can make money. Exactly. But, I mean, think about it. He's getting a salary for working on the farm. He also has 8% of this company and his flies paid for. So he's good got deal. a pretty, pretty good deal here, too. So Jeremy lived a peaceful and wealthy existence in England while working for his parents. He was described as a ladies' man who had made many women angry at him. Or like He was like a two-timer kind of thing, but I mean, he was a young guy. So sometimes they grow out of it, sometimes they don't. So that brings us to the first week of August in 1985. Sheila was still living in her bought apartment, sedated on medication, and working two part-time jobs to pay her bills. I do think that Jeremy got the better of the two deals when it comes to the parents' money. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that on paper it's definitely a better deal, but maybe it's because the relationship wasn't as good as everyone, you know, maybe as as mentioned, you know. Yeah, that could be a possibility. I just think that it seems like on paper that Jeremy was the favorite, whether it be because of his personality. And his relationship with his parents, maybe he was a little bit more grateful. But it seems like June and Sheila have a very strange relationship. That's also true. And it could be the fact that I don't think she ever approved of Sheila having the children, the relationship with Colin. And they may feel guilty about what happened to Jeremy. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what really plays into it. Yeah, the guilt. I think the guilt maybe of a, like because of what happened to him. While he was away at boarding school, right. yeah. That's what I'm saying, you know? I don't know. So Sheila had taken some time off and was going to spend the week at her parents' house. This is back in August we're talking about. She was staying there because her children would be staying for a week visiting their grandparents. This vacation was worked out because Colin, Sheila's ex-husband, wanted to take the children on vacation with him a week later to Norway. He thought it was only fair that Sheila's family got to spend time with the boys as well. At this point, Sheila was fighting for more full-time custody of the boys. And not not necessarily legally fighting for more custody, but trying to prove to Colin that she was capable of having the boys for a significant amount of time. So I think this was kind of like a, a trial run 
type deal. Right. I mean, I'm sure she wanted a bigger role in their in her children's lives, you know? Right, exactly. And he also felt very comfortable with the fact that Sheila wouldn't have the boys completely alone. Daniel and Nicholas, now six years old, though, were reluctant to go to the farm. The boys were not looking forward to going. They did not like the fact that June made them pray all the time. And on the drive to the farm, Colin recalls that they actually asked him to talk to her about it so they wouldn't have to do it. (laughs) It's funny. It is funny. Daniel was also upset because he had recently become a vegetarian and did not want to be forced to eat meat while he was there. Colin agreed to talk to the Bambers about all the boys' concerns. Colin knew that the Bambers, although loving and a generous couple, could be demanding and pressing in their pre-World War viewpoints. He also knew that Sheila was not happy with her parents either. The night before, during a housewarming party, Sheila had opened up to him. Although the couple was divorced, they were on good terms, and he invited her and her brother, along with his, his, her brother's girlfriend, to the party. When they were cleaning up, she admitted to him how angry she was at her parents for making her admit herself to St. Andrews again for four weeks, and she was especially not happy with the fact that they had made the choice that she was to get the antipsychotics injected into her monthly. Everyone stated that she was vacant that night and seemed very detached. Jeremy, her brother, drove her home early and returned to the party afterwards. But that was the night before, and Colin reassured his boys that they would have a good time. And when Colin arrived, he agreed to have a drink and a snack with the family. As the boys played with the family dog, he talked to Neville and Sheila about the boys' concerns. He stated that they reacted good-naturedly, and he felt really good about that, about leaving them in their care. However, Sheila was also in the room with them, and Colin will later explain that he could tell that Sheila wanted him to address the treatment that they were making her take. However, Colin, a concerned father, really agreed in part with the Bambers and was concerned about Sheila's mental state, so he decided to not bring her treatment up. He explained later that he could feel a disappointment from Sheila and that he didn't feel like meet, like he couldn't meet her gaze. Like... He knew he should have probably said something, but because of the boys, he didn't. But for her, he probably should have. Right. I. I, That's like a. That's a hard. um, It's a hard situation to be. Yeah, I was gonna say it's. Yeah, it's in between a rock and a hard place. I wouldn't want to be there. (laughs) Yeah. And in the early evening of August fourth, nineteen eighty-five, Colin Caffell said goodbye to his boys. He told them he loved them and couldn't wait for their vacation, that they would have together after the week was up. But Colin would never get that vacation. That was the last time he'd ever see his boys alive. Okay, so let's get into the night of the murder. So we're going to skip forward a few nights because the night of the crime is going to be August 6th. By all accounts, the actions and activities of the Bamber family that night appeared normal. A housekeeper will later testify that she did not notice anything out of the ordinary when it came to the actions of Sheila. Now we have two conflicting pieces of information here in regards to the boys' time at the farm. Later, two farm workers are going to state that they saw the twins and Sheila playing together in the yard, outside of the house, and the three seemed really happy. However, physical evidence would later reveal 
that one of the boys carved into the cupboard door in their bedroom the words, I hate this place. That's so, something I would do. <laughs> no, that really is something it does, I would do. It is something you would do. <laughs> <laughs> you little jerk. But it's, I mean, that's either kids being kids or they really were miserable there. I mean, I think it kind of shows that they were miserable. Yeah. They, like, they didn't want to go. They were very reluctant to go, so. It also seems like they're, by all accounts of, like, reading all this stuff on this case, it seemed like Colin Caffell was, like, kind of that cool dad. Yeah. So so going and living with, like, your cool dad and then going to live with your, like, really strict religious grandparents. It ain't cool. And your mom, <laughs> yeah. who's kind of in and out of the picture. And, and I'm sure the boys had witnessed at least one of these psychotic episodes and maybe were scared of their mother. That's very possible. She did believe truly that they were the devil's children. That's kind of creepy. (laughs) It is creepy. And so maybe they weren't happy to be there. I mean, that's a normal six-year-old kind of thing. Oh, yeah. But on the evening of Tuesday, August 6th, 1985, Jeremy was invited to the farmhouse for dinner to visit his parents, sister, and nephews. While they were eating dinner, Jeremy would later testify that his parents suggested that the boys be entered into a daytime foster care with a local family. So I've listened to a lot of podcasts and documentaries and read a few books on this. And I was always very confused by the way this sounded, because at first when you read it, you think, oh, the parents are suggesting that the boys go into foster care, like be completely taken away from Sheila. And like, that would get me angry if my parents ever, no matter what mental state I'm in, if anyone suggested my children be taken away, I'm sure that would, you know, incite some anger in somebody. However, that's really not what they were suggesting. What was currently happening was that when Sheila had custody, she would have to request those days off from work. What her parents were suggesting was that she work full time and have the boys put in a type of daycare center. Jeremy did state that Sheila did not seem bothered by the suggestion while they were talking at dinner. Like she was just kind of like kind of shrugged off the idea. But we don't know whether or not her non-reaction was because of her medication or the fact that she agreed or the fact that she was plotting something. Dr. Ferguson would later state that if it was suggested to Sheila that she give up custody of her children, she would have a strong reaction. But she would like part-time help. Like she had talked about that in their sessions. And it really doesn't make sense for them to say, give up custody because the boys have their father. So in reality, they were probably just talking about daycare. Right, which I agree with. But what's odd to me is that they're suggesting daytime daycare, right? But you're, where's the grandparents? I mean, they could watch these children while she, No, the it seems work. like there's the where Colin lives in relation to the like the rest of the Bamber family is kind of a, a distance away. Like it wouldn't just be you could babysit. You know what I mean? I guess so. But I yeah, mean, like, plus they're working the farm. I you know. So. I, I, you know what? That's true. They they're, are working the farm. Right. They're not just retired couple. Yeah. But either way, there wasn't like a massive blow up that took place at this suggestion. I will say that we know that Sheila's already upset that June had gotten involved with her treatment. So like making another suggestion could be construed as like June and Neville trying to dictate Sheila's life, whereas they really truly don't try to dictate Jeremy's life. 
Right. Well, I could I could also So I can see her that. getting yeah. angry. Oh yeah. But she doesn't have a reaction. So sometime during Jeremy's visit to the house, he stated that he had thought he heard rabbits in the yard. Therefore, he loaded the rifle that his father had. However, he could not see the rabbits, so he left the rifle loaded on the kitchen table with a full magazine and a box of ammunition lying beside it. That is not a responsible gun owner. No, it's not. (laughs) And it really is reported that Neville is a responsible gun owner. He always keeps all of his guns locked away. But Jeremy kind of carelessly left it on the kitchen table. I do... Well, I don't want to get to... We'll get it. We'll get there. We'll get there. He stated that when he left the gun, it didn't have a silencer or telescopic sight attached. This is important fact that will come into play later. A farm worker stated that Jeremy left the house around 9.30 p.m. The Bambers received two telephone calls that night. One was a little around 9.30 p.m. A woman named Barbara Wilson called. She was the farm secretary. She stated that she had felt her phone call interrupted an argument that was taking place. She said that Neville, who was usually an even-tempered man, was irritated and short with her. So, could be, yeah, maybe she did interrupt an argument. And usually, like like said before, Neville and June like keeping up appearances. So, maybe she's never used to him arguing because they do like to keep up appearances. Yeah, everything's behind closed doors, you know? Right. June's sister, Pamela Boutflower, called... What a last name. What a last name, yeah. <laughs> Boutflower. Called around 10 p.m. That's so late. Can... I'd be like... Call back. Leave me alone. Yeah, call back tomorrow. (laughs) That's so late. She said she first spoke to Sheila, who seemed very quiet, and then to June, who seemed very normal. So whatever fight that may have been interrupted at 9.30 seemed to have been placated by 10 p.m. And that is where we leave off with the first-hand accounts of the Bambers that night. The next contact the outside world has with the family is when Jeremy Bamber back at his house at this point, received a frantic call from his father. He states that his father was out of breath and heard him scared like he had never heard him before. He told Jeremy that he has to come back and to call the police, that Sheila had gone berserk with a gun. His thoughts immediately went to the loaded shotgun that he had laid down, fully loaded, before he left. As his father was speaking to him, the line went dead. At this point, Bamber calls the police and then heads over to his parents' house. The police had asked the British telecom officers to check the line, so to check the Bamber's line at White House Farm. The line to the house was in fact left open, meaning that Neville had not hung up the phone to end the call, but the phone had dropped from his hand. The line was checked at 3.56 a.m., and again at 4.30 a.m. The only thing that was heard was barking. So here we are going to get into our first dispute of the case, the telephone calls. Without getting too far ahead of ourselves, we need to go over two theories we have regarding the contacting of police in the early morning of August 7th. One school of thought is that only Jeremy contacted the police that night. The other is that both Neville and Jeremy contacted the police that night. The answer lies within the police logs of dispatch calls made that night. So we have two separate logs, the event log and the radio log. First, the event log covers the calls that came in 
to the Chelmsford Police Station in the early morning hours of August 7, 1985. So Jeremy doesn't call 999, which is like calling 911. He directly calls the police station that would send the dispatch. Okay. 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 So this is the call that Jeremy Bamber placed. In the log, it states that the call was placed at 3.36 a.m., but the man that took the call, P.C. Michael West, will later admit during trial that he was wrong about recording the time, that it must have been 3.26 a.m. because he ended up dispatching a car to the location at 3.35. So he couldn't have called the minute after. Right, right. So it had to have... He said he, he misread the digital clock. That's what he must have done. The log states the following. Like, this is what it physically says on the log. Mr. Bamber, 9 Head Street, Gold Hanger. This is Jeremy's home address. Father phoned, age 62, and stated, Please come over. Your sister has gone crazy and has the gun. Phone went dead. Father, Mr. Bamber, White House Farm. Sister, Sheila Bamber, aged 27, has history of mental illness. Dispatched, C-A-5 to the scene. So that's the car that they sent to the scene. C-A-5. Informant requests to attend the scene. So Jeremy asked if he could be there. Then there is another log from the same night slash early morning, and this is called the radio log. This is a log kept by a separate dispatcher at Chelmsford, a civilian named Michael Bonnet. His log states that a call came in at 3.26 a.m. on August 7th. His log notes are titled, Daughter Gone Berserk. And this is what his log directly reads. Mr. Bamber, White House Farm, Telechant DRC. Daughter, Sheila Bamber, aged 26, has got a hold of one of my guns. Message passed to C.D., by the son of Mr. Bamber, after phone went dead. Mr. Bamber has a collection of shotguns. It includes the number for White House Farm, along with the note that the line has been checked twice and has been left off the hook. It then states that CA-7 has been dispatched. So the logs that are present in court show that CA-7 left to go to the White House Farm at 335, and arrived at the scene at 3.48, and that CA-5 was dispatched at 3.36 and arrived at 4.23. So the assumption here would be that if you believe Neville called the police, that Neville made the phone call first and then called his son, and then Jeremy called again after. So let's have a little pause to discuss this. Do we think that there are two separate calls? The evidence that points to two separate calls is the fact that two different logs are present. Two different officers were dispatched, and the accounts are different. One has all of Jeremy's information noted, while the other has all of Neville's information noted. Even the wording, saying sister versus daughter. There's even two different ages listed for Sheila. But the other side of the argument is, it could possibly be a description of the same call noted later on because the call, it's, it's now recorded as the accurate time, 326. 
They, so the both calls came in at 326. That's very interesting. Yeah, the, the calling is interesting because the logs are truly um, the only thing that we have now. I mean, you have to say to yourself that you have to believe the lo- like the logs because the logs are the only evidence that proves there even being phone calls placed. Right. Like, I, I, from what I've seen, the physical logs, it does seem like two separate calls were placed. It does seem like Neville did make a phone call because the title of the log wouldn't be Daughter Gone Berserk. No. It would have been Father Called Son or... Do you know what I mean? Like, it was. it's the language of saying daughter... And then what I thought interesting was the two different ages of Sheila. Right. One said it was 27. One the said other logs are 26 or 28. 28, which I, I mean, it's funny. My dad does not know how old I am. My dad doesn't know how like, old I am either. He, he, it just, I think that's a very <laughs> dad thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas I think a brother would know how old their sister is more easily than a, do you know what I'm saying? Or it could have been that he that the dispatcher just couldn't make out exactly what was said either. Right, right. And then that's why you have two different logs with two different age groups. I think that the age really isn't that big of a deal. Yeah, um, I think the off- language is more. Yeah. I especially think- the addresses. One clearly says Jeremy's address. The other clearly says the White House farm. But these dispatchers aren't very reliable in, in writing their logs down correctly. Right. I mean, the the one dispatcher did mention that he made a mistake on the digital clock. So, so and these and these calls, if it it, it was three twenty, because he wrote down that Jeremy called at three thirty six, but then he he said, "Oh, it must have been three twenty six. Maybe he's completely wrong. The one thing, I, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. The because only... how did both calls come in at exactly three twenty six? Because then that would be the accurate time well, of both calls. That's what I'm saying. So, like, even though Something. those two logs are our only evidence, I guarantee you that They're there's inaccurate. a mistake. Um, the only thing that we know is that the, the calls were placed, but we don't know the actual details, like the timing, because they're off. They're definitely off. Um, that's weird. That is weird to me. Yeah. But I'm sure it happened a lot back that then, That is though. interesting. Um, yeah, I don't... Now, I don't want to go too, too into it because we are going to talk about it during the trial, how these logs come up again. But those are the two schools of thought. Some people believe that Neville and Jeremy called the police. Some people believe only Jeremy called the police. So we'll leave that at that for now. Okay. Just one last thing, though, with, mm-hmm. the, with, with the patrol. So they sent out two cars. Two cars at first. Right. So then which car, like, we, do we even know which car... There should be evidence to see, like, I mean, we do, We read that one car got there at whatever time, yes. the other one got there. So there's proof that those two cars did arrive there. So that dispatcher pretty much saying, oh, yeah, I made a mistake. It should have been 326 or whatever. Right. But it, the proof is that at least we know that the car got there. Two cars got Two cars there. did make their way there. The, one, the first one, CA7, that was dispatched by the call that Jeremy made was arrived there very shortly after the call at 3.48, whereas the other one didn't arrive there until 4.23, which is, which could allude to the fact that there was only one phone call. 
it's it's interesting because the one that was dispatched from Jeremy's call didn't get there until almost 4.30. Whereas the call that was supposed to be placed from Neville, like if we're saying he did place the call, that was a car that arrived right away, like quick. Right. So that could allude to the fact there's actually two calls. Well, I... There... Because if a father's calling saying, oh, my daughter's got a gun and she's going crazy, they're going to get there pretty quick. Whereas the second one, maybe they knew that that first car had already been dispatched, takes a little bit more time getting there from Jeremy's call. Do you see what I'm saying? Or it's very possible that, I mean, if you're going to say that only one call was placed, then you can make the argument that one the, one dis, the, the dispatcher sent the one car out and the following car was sent out for backup. Yeah, because when he you, did yeah. get there, you know what I'm saying. We are talking about a, you know, a gun. Yeah, we're talking about someone that's unstable. It's very possible. I think that the lack of proper documentation and logs is what really is going to make this case super complicated. Absolutely. Because if we knew whether there were two calls or one call, that would solve this whole case. Yeah. Okay. But either way, we don't want to we don't want to like give away all of our thunder. <laughs> no. Either way, police are dispatched. PS Bues and PCs Myall and Saxby state that while driving to the scene, they passed Jeremy on Pages Lane, which is the desolate street that leads up to the White House farm estates. They testify that he was driving slower than they were. Others have testified that this is unusual because Jeremy usually is a fast driver. He only ended up arriving at the scene a minute or two after police did. Sometimes I think this is dwelled upon a little bit, but if he only if he showed up a minute after, I think that's completely okay. Your sister apparently is going berserk, got a gun. I think I'd let the police get there first. Yeah, I mean, people I think make a big deal about him driving into that too slow. much. I mean, also you don't want to get. You don't want to interfere in them getting on the scene. Correct. You know what I mean? After discussing the situation, the officers informed Jeremy that they were not going to enter the house. They were going to wait for a tactical firearms group to arrive. In the United Kingdom, with the exception of Northern Ireland, most police officers do not carry firearms. Those that do are part of a specially trained firearms team. This tactical group arrived at 5 a.m., Remember, the call was placed at 3.30. Once the team arrives, they made the decision that they would not enter the house until daylight. Are you serious? Yeah. Apparently, they felt as if this was not safe because it had been stated that they saw movement coming from within the house. They decided the best thing to try and do was communicate with Sheila. All the doors and windows were shut and locked except for the bedroom window on the first floor. It was through this medium that they tried to communicate with her. However, the only sounds that escaped the house was the dog barking. That's kind of creepy. It is creepy, but it's also infuriating. At 3.30, I called you. My sister's going crazy. My parents might be injured in there. They could be bleeding to death. Sure. And you won't go in? What are you here for? Why? Why did? Why do the police exist? That's why I. Don't I would un- be I don't so bad. I just don't understand why they don't carry firearms or police officers. Well, I mean, that's just their thing. But well, yeah, it's the laws of their. It's country. crazy. I think that uh, firearms aside. Right. That's a whole other. That's a thing. whole other ball game. But I would be furious that even when the tactical team got there, they wouldn't go in. 
Yeah, true. True. Like, or better can we, yet, can we go in? What, what, can we what, check? Yeah, what's aggravating is that they knew that there was a gun present in the home, mm-hmm. right? Right. So instead of calling patrol, it probably should have just sent the tactical team out first. Like, what the fuck? Right, to begin with. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Lost in translation here a little bit. Absolutely. While waiting for daylight to enter the house, the police had long conversations with Jeremy. I personally feel like I'd be screaming the whole time, like, can we go in? Can we go in? (laughs) I'll go in myself. Yeah. He was asked why this might have happened and if his sister was capable of doing this. He told police that he really didn't know, that she was a nutter, as he so eloquently put it. A nutter? A nutter. Oh, my God. The police asked him if there was a reason why his father would have called him, and he says he's not sure, but Bamber states that maybe his father was not sure if he at first wanted to get the police involved because he didn't want their dirty laundry getting aired. Right? Which I believe that 100%. Right. Uh, me too. And I also believe that he didn't want to get Sheila in trouble as she was trying to get more custody of her children. He also stated that during their dinner, their parents didn't mention to Sheila that maybe she should do the daytime foster care. He also said that he didn't call 999 because he didn't think that the police would get there any faster. Really, no, they didn't. And then when they got there, they wouldn't go in anyway. So it doesn't right. matter who we called. <laughs> he also said that Sheila was familiar with firearms. In fact, they had gone target shooting several times together. It was then that he admitted that he had loaded a rifle and left it on the kitchen table with the ammunition next to it. Hours passed. And the police, over time, changed the subject. And it seems to me that the police and Jeremy were just kind of involved in a lot of small talk which is a little strange because your family could be hurt. So I think that it's a little weird that his attitude right now is a little blasé. You know what I mean? Right, but you could just write that off as just trying to get some information. I know, I know. You know. But, so they begin talking about cars. And at one point, Jeremy's going to state that uh, the caravan site that he owned 8% of was going to soon earn him a Porsche. So it seems like he's sitting pretty. Right yeah, now. Absolutely. Financially, yeah. very, very stable. So it's finally at 7.54 a.m. that the police decide that it's a good time to make their way into the house. Crazy amount of time has passed. Like, why? <laughs> right. Um, basically, four and a half hours before the initial phone call to the entering of the house. So they enter through the back door using a sledgehammer to break it down. The door had been locked from the inside, and they knew this because the key was still in the lock. In the house... They found five bodies with multiple gunshot wounds. Someone had killed the entire Bamber family. Including Sheila? Including Sheila. So who was truly responsible for the death of the Bamber family? And on the second part of this episode, which we're going to release next Saturday, we're going to cover the crime scene, the evidence, the court cases, and of course, the theories. My favorite part. Yes. So we are going to cover the second part of the White House Farm family murders next Saturday. We're going to get that to you. We know it's taken a long time to get these episodes. Definitely have read a few books because there's so much information on this case and we really wanted to get every detail we possibly could out of this. So we're excited to bring you the second half next week. 
And again, like always, if you're feeling generous, you can leave us a review on iTunes if you haven't already done so. And if you feel like donating on Patreon, you could do that. Patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. Really anything helps. And we appreciate everyone who is supporting us. It's so amazing. And again, we're going to have an episode for you guys out shortly for Patreon as well. All right, we'll see you next week, guys. Bye. Bye, guys.